This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow morning, I'm not sure when during the day tomorrow, but sometime tomorrow, the Supreme Court of Canada is going to hear arguments about whether Canadians who've been living abroad for years should have the right to vote in federal elections. At the core of the argument, and you try and break this down, at the core of the argument really is the issue of should those who have been out of the country not been involved necessarily directly in this country with paying taxes, with doing other things, should they have a say in who governs us? If you have lived overseas for a long time, should you have a say in who actually lives here? Or alternatively, if you are a Canadian by birth, if you are a Canadian, you are always a Canadian. If you're a Canadian, you probably have an interest in your home and native land, and therefore you should be able to cast a ballot like everyone else, regardless of where you live. It's a fascinating topic because it has wide-ranging implications, and depending on the number of people who would actually come out and vote of those expats, it could be significant in an election. Alan Nichols is the founder and president of the Canadian Expat Association. He joins me now. Alan, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure entirely, Scott. Let me start with this, and I'm going to, this is an actual example, and I have no idea if he votes or wants to vote, but I have a high school friend. We were very close in high school. He moved to Britain shortly after high school was over and for now 25 or 28 years has been living over there. Far as I know, he has no intention of ever coming back to Canada, but he remains a Canadian citizen. Should he be allowed to vote in the upcoming federal election? So you mean to be a Canadian citizen, correct? He is a Canadian citizen. Then he should be able to vote. Absolutely. Why? Because there will be people who will say, as I said in the introduction, I don't know that someone who has no, uh, he has a spiritual connection to this country, but no tangible connection should have a say then in who is governing us. Right. You know, we believe strongly that Canada does not have a multi-tiered level of citizenship, right? Where one person's voice carries more than the other. I think that's fundamental to our democracy. So our election laws as they currently stand say that a Canadian expat, because they're not living in Canada, they are regarded as less of a Canadian than you and I who are currently living here. And we don't think that's right. right? That's counter to our form of democracy. And, th- and right now, the rules, as I understand it, the, I think they came in place in 93, but weren't necessarily enforced uh, until more recently. If you have been living outside the country for five years, you're not permitted to vote. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. So you could go away for university or whatever and still very much be able to cast a ballot. It's when you've left for a longer period of time that they are saying, mm, we don't really think that you, well, I don't know what they're saying. I, you probably don't know what they're saying either. You're, you're not eligible because for whatever reason. Right, exactly. And you know they're saying that you're not eligible regardless of the contributions that you make back to Canada as well. I mean, you've mentioned taxation, but there's a lot of other contributions that Canadian expats make back to the country, um, you know, even if they're not necessarily visiting here. If they're visiting here, of course, they're making economic uh, contributions by simply visiting. But you've got to keep in mind that in virtually every major city of the world, Scott, there is a Canadian uh, Chamber of Commerce or a Business Council, and these are staffed and run by Canadians who are long-term residents over there. Both the government and business relies on these resources heavily to encourage trade between Canada and the rest of the world. Now, that's just one small example, but I think it's a very concrete example of, of the sort of contributions that Canadian expats are making to our country. And instead of disenfranchising them, instead of saying, no, we don't want you to be a part of our society, I think it would be much more constructive go back and say, yeah, we want to engage with you. We want our election process to be part of your life and for them to be involved in it. I think that makes sense. Is there a, there's a lot that you just said there. There's a lot of things that a lot of people are going to have a lot of opinions on. And and I'm sure you understand that too. You've probably heard both sides of it. Is there, first of all, before I get into that, is there a compromise position that you and your group would be comfortable with that someone says, you know what, yeah, I've, I'm away for 10 years, but I, you know, there's a chance I could come back and I really want to make sure that Canada is the Canada that I believe in, as opposed to I've left and I've been gone now for 50 years and I'm clearly never coming home, but I still want to vote because I like to vote. Is there, a, is there anything in between those? 
I don't think there there is anything in between that, Scott. I mean, as you stated before in your introduction, I think that Canadian citizens are Canadian citizens. And, and quite frankly, I think level heads prevail. Somebody who has been abroad for 25, 30 years has no intention to come back. Um, I, I don't think they're going to be voting anyway. I think it's a null point. But regardless... Uh, I think they should be entitled. I think we should be able to engage in these citizens that are abroad. Yeah, the, you know, the one example that comes to mind, of course, of the latter example was Donald Sutherland, who was very vocal in the last election because his his ability to vote was taken away, and he's been out of the country I'm not sure how long. I'm sure he's been back. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, there, I mean, there are some, I suppose, but I think you're probably right. I think the people who have been away for a long, long time probably have cut those ties for the most part, at least voting-wise. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Alan Nichols, founder and president of the Canadian Expat Association, about a hearing that will be held at the Supreme Court tomorrow about whether Canadians who have been outside the country, living outside the country for more than five years, should be allowed to vote in a federal election. And Alan, let me, let me play both sides of this. Let me play each side that I obviously are the, the main arguments here, and I want to hear your thoughts on this. The first one... And your side, I clearly, if I decide to live outside of Canada, I'm a Canadian, I have a Canadian passport, I don't care if it's five years, 10 years, 20 years, if I suddenly get into trouble somewhere in the world or if war breaks out or something else, I am going to want my government, my embassy to come to my aid. And so for that reason, I think most people, even the people who might disagree with you would say, yes, once I'm a Canadian, I'm always a Canadian. That part of the argument then holds a lot of water right there. That, that if that even those who might disagree with you, if they run into trouble overseas, they're going to say, no, 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 I'm a Canadian. That, see, this is how it works. That would bolster your case, I would think, the idea that you are a Canadian always. Right. Very good. The flip side, of course, is that if you are not here and you decide you want to vote for a prime minister or a, or a government and you your vote will not really impact you because you'll not be here to live under the rules that that government would impose. Therefore, that doesn't seem exactly fair that you could, from a distance, cast a ballot that will impact me, but not really you. Sure, but um, I think the argument can be made that that the government would affect even abroad for a very long time. It's, uh, it will affect you perhaps directly, but uh, indirectly as well, perhaps your family. There's there's also international trade that comes in. I mentioned this before, that there are a lot of Canadians abroad that are heavily involved in acting. Alan, I don't, know, I don't know if you've moved around. We've just completely lost uh, your cell reception there. If you could uh, just try again, because we're sorry, we're just fading in and out here. All right, can you hear me? That's better. Yeah, there we go. Okay, very good. Yeah, no, I'm just saying that, uh, you, I think to say that uh, any vote that you cast will not have an effect on you, uh, I think governments, regardless of, of what sort of decisions are being made, I think it does have an effect on you as a Canadian living abroad as well. I think that's something we have to remember, that it does affect them either directly or indirectly in terms of perhaps their family or them directly. As I mentioned before, Canadians abroad are heavily involved in international trade, so a government that's making decisions regarding that will potentially affect you directly as well. When you deal with expats, and obviously you do, that's your whole association, uh, what's their thought on this? Are most of them very passionate about this idea, or are most of them more ambivalent to the idea? You know, it goes both ways. I think uh, in terms of being able to vote or not, or whether or not they really want to vote or not, they can vote 50 50. But the, the fact is important. That are able to vote is, is something that they feel very strongly about for the most, for sure. Um, in terms of people that are. Very keen on feeling engaged, and I think it's important that we as a country, etc. Alan, we're you know what we've got a terrible connection. Let me, ben is going to try calling you right back because we've just got a horrible connection. We can't really hear you, Ben. Can you give him a shout right back? Um, it, it is a it is a. I want to keep going on this because I think there are a lot of people 
here who might disagree with what he's saying. Now, I think there's a lot of people who would agree as well. As I say, I think a lot of people would say, no, if you're a Canadian, of course you should have a right to vote. And probably our feeling about this, probably, if it's like everything else in life, we are very political these days. We are very opinionated. I'm guessing that probably a lot of our opinion on this would come after we see where the expat votes are going. And if they all vote for the party or a lot of them vote for the party that we like, we think this is a great idea. Of course, they should be able to have a vote. But if the prime minister or the party that we favor loses and you look and you see that a reasonable number of expat votes went against that person and may have cost them seats and may have cost them their chance to govern, I think a lot of people may say, this is, come on, you can't do this. This doesn't make any sense. They don't pay taxes here. They don't do all these other things. So like a lot of things in our society, like a lot of things in our life, I think we probably would pick or choose based on the circumstances whether or not we agree with this concept. Not necessarily. We're not necessarily hard and fast on this all the time in all the same ways. It will be the circumstances that will determine whether or not we like this concept. Alan is back with us. Alan, thanks for getting back. Sorry about that. No, I apologize. Sorry for the connection. Uh, we've just got about a minute left. So this other thing, what do other countries do about this? Are we unique in this? Or is this a, what do, what does the United States do, for example, for their expats? The United States, uh, they allow uh, a, an individual to vote uh, so long as they are contributing taxes to the country. What about, do we have to, do our people have to be contributing taxes? They do not have to be contributing taxes, no. Okay. The, the hearing... I don't think we want to be looking at the U.S., for an example. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the hearing tomorrow, is the, what are we expecting? And I don't mean as far as uh, you winning or you losing or your side winning or losing. Mm-hmm. Is this going to be a straightforward decision? Is that what is being asked for to just simply decide can they or can they not? Well, we expect that it will be a straightforward decision. Um, and, you know, in, in terms of our reaction to that, you know, of course, we'll have to take a look at what... The, the justices come up with and their reasons behind the decision, but I, I don't think it's necessarily an end to the story at the same time. You know, the decision will be final, but you can't appeal to the Supreme Court. But uh, I think we can certainly look at perhaps um, parallel legislation that can be put into place if it's something that, uh, if it's a decision that we're not entirely happy about. Alan Nichols, founder and president of the Canadian Expat Association. Uh, You, of course, will be hearing about this tomorrow. It'll be all over the news tomorrow or whenever the decision comes down. Uh, Sir, I really appreciate you doing this today. Thanks for the time. My pleasure entirely. Thanks so much, Scott. Uh, Be following that because it's a really interesting one. Whether you agree with the idea or disagree with the idea, it is a really interesting discussion about whether people who don't live here anymore should have a say in our governance if they are Canadian. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. All kinds of radio stations, all kinds of TV stations, every newspaper, websites, around the coffee machine at your office, in your house, everywhere, there has been talk about the start of the election. About the Liberals' plan that came out yesterday, their new plan that's going to spend money on everything. Everybody gets a new car. It's like an Oprah show. You get a car and you get a... It's not quite, but similar. And Andrea Horvath's plan that everyone gets free dental care and free university and free this and it, and Doug Ford's plan that everything's, we're going to cut stuff and we're going to get rid of things and you're going to lose some benefits and things like that. Well, you know, you hear over the time that this is all happening, you begin to hear some people expressing a bit of disillusionment with the options. They don't necessarily believe that we can afford everything that are being promised, but we also don't like the idea that everything's going to be cut. So who's my choice? Well, who do I vote for if I don't like any of the people? There's no other options, right? Well, that's not exactly true. There are other parties out there fielding candidates. Trouble is they are small, smaller. Some would use the word fringe. And they're not going to win. At least they're not going to form a government. And they'll be hard-pressed to earn a seat, but they're out there. But what do you do with them then? If they're not the big three, what do you do with them? Do you ignore them? Do you give them equal standing at all candidates' meetings and in the leadership debates and everything else? Do you give them some attention? What do you do with these smaller parties? My next guest would certainly vote for either of the last two options, which would be give them some attention or give them full standing. 
Linda Chenoweth is a Hamilton resident who was a teacher for 25 years. She's now retired from that. She is now running for the none of the above party. And I know some of you just heard that and said, wait a second, there's not really a none of the above party. Yes, there is. That is a real thing. And she is running for them. And Linda joins me now. Linda, thanks for doing this today. You're welcome, Scott. Uh, I'm sure that there are more than a few people who have heard uh, just right now for the very first time of the none of the above party and think that it actually is a made-up thing. What is the none of the above party? Well, the none of the above party is a registered political party here in Ontario, uh, founded by Greg Vezina, our party leader. Um, Candidates did run in the last, in the 2014 um, election. And... um, I was a disillusioned citizen who found out about them because I um, actually didn't even know I could decline my vote. And when I did find out about that, after I um, declined my vote in the last election, I came home and thought, this is ridiculous. We should be able to say on our ballot, let the, the political parties that we do have, no, we're not happy with any of them. And so I went home, and all I had to do was go to Elections Ontario. In two clicks, I found out how many parties they truly are. And right now, there are 21 political parties that are registered here in Ontario. And we hear about four, the top three plus the Greens. Right. And so other than the none of the above party, what are some of the other ones that most people, that you know of, that most people would never have probably heard of before? Um, I don't know anymore. You don't okay. hear much about the Renarceris Party, the Lib- yep. Libertarians. Um, let me think. All right. So, the, I mean, there National are... National Coalition Party. Communist Party is probably Communist still out there. Party, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, what do you propose then? So, you're you're a former teacher. You're an intelligent... like, And that's... I want to stress this as well, just in case anyone's thinking, okay, so, Scott, you brought on some wingnut who decided to get involved with some... No, no. You are a an intelligent, retired teacher. You're not a crazy person. I want to make that clear. What do you propose should be done, what's the correct way to deal with these smaller parties then? What do you think should be the way that the province and the and the voters and the media and everyone else deals with these smaller parties? Well, first of all, we live in a democracy, or we're supposed to live in a democracy. That could be questioned. I mean, if we live in a democracy, then all political parties have a right to have their voice heard. That's what democracy is all about. Um, as a small party... And it's a small party, first of all, because it's a new party. But it's also a small party because, and the rest of them are very small as well, because they're kept small by the power, the parties that are in power. So the parties that are in power uh, create uh, laws and rules that keep these parties small. And so what I'm suggesting is that when there's debate, that anybody who is a registered party is allowed a platform to speak, especially in public airwaves such as here, um, that we have just as much a right to um, state our mandate as the other parties. And so, so at all candidates' meetings, at leaders' uh, debates, all those kind of things, there should be an equal platform for all the parties? I, I'm saying a platform. I'm not saying necessarily equal equal platform, but let's face it. How do we get new parties who have new ideas um, and how do we get people to know about them if we don't tell them about them? I didn't know about the None of the Above Party. And the, uh, the full name for the None of the Above Party is actually the None of the Above Direct Democracy Party. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Linda Chenoweth here on The Scott Radley Show. She is a retired teacher from Hamilton who is running in the provincial election for the None of the Above Party which again, many of you are hearing about for the very first time. Let me tell you, by the way, before I bring Linda just back into this, how I found out about this, Linda reached out to me and told me that she was running in this party. And I got to admit, I didn't know much about it, Linda. And I think that probably when you go bang on doors and you go do your campaigning and everything else, you're probably going to run into a lot of that, I think, of people saying, I don't really know what you're all about. And, and that's so true. And the, re- the reason that people don't know about it is because we're not given a platform to talk about it in, in the everyday media. Um, mainstream media controls what people hear, and uh, mainstream media is very important um, in a democracy. And if they're not um, talking about all the parties that are in power, then they're basically 
uh, campaigning for the parties that they are talking about all the time. We have, by the way, uh, just called in Greg Brezina, uh, the uh, Brezina, the leader of. Oops, and I just cut Linda off. Uh, Greg, thanks for joining us. You are the leader of the None of the Above Party. Thanks for calling in today. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks. Uh, thanks very much for having uh, me and having Linda on. Well, uh, let me jump in. Great. Let me My jump. My last name is Vezina. Vezina. Like Pardon me. Oh, so no tickets for you. For the <laughs> no kidding. The Leafs get there. Eh? But but your family comes from a great line of goalies, obviously. Exactly. So there you go. Exactly. Uh, Actually, the, the f- first famous Vezina was a, uh, the, a composer in Quebec in 1730. Oh, well, see, you learn something new. Come by it honestly. So listen, yeah, 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 the whole idea behind the party, um, we started with eight candidates in the 2014 election two weeks after the writ had been dropped. Uh, and four of them were relatives. Um, <laughs> and we, we started because I came to the stark realization um, that changing one party for the other for another 150 years... Uh, and not getting representative democracy, which we're supposed to have, and not getting direct democracy, which they have in B.C. and they've used, was enough. I just had enough. Um, And it's kind of amazing because the notion of people moving from representative democracy to direct democracy is something that's happened all over the world. And Canada was a, a bit immune to that with the Trudeau election because we chose not to follow the rest of the world and elect a non-major party, new party, with a majority or close to a majority, which, again, has happened in Germany, has happened in, in France, has happened in a num- number of other countries. And so what is really happening is, although some in the media say that it's the extreme parties that are winning the election, it's not. The extreme party in Germany came fifth and got 17% of the vote. The direct democracy party got 35 Greg, the, the, so, you know, the whole idea is to give us a choice of a new way to govern ourselves, and that's what this is all about. And Greg, you know, that's a uh, that's a conversation that I'd love to have another day, and it, it is an important one to have yeah. for t- right now. And the, what I was asking Linda before I accidentally cut her off, so I apologize to Linda. Um, it, it's the tricky part because we were chatting with Linda about how do you do this then? Because we have the three main political parties that I think even you would acknowledge one of them is going to win this election. So, well, how that's do- not, for, in the first case, that's not, not true. Um, and new parties have gone from nowhere in one election okay. to forming a government. But more importantly, uh, let, let me try and deal with your point, because you raise a reasonable point. There's no question that a party that's running in, in eight ridings should get the same coverage as a party running in all of them. Okay, there's no question there. And all we've ever asked for is equitability or fairness. So in the United States, for example, for years and years, you've only had the two major parties in presidential debates. But now the U.S. federal court has said, no, your rule that you need 15% of the vote to get on the debate is unconstitutional for two reasons. First, the pollsters don't name the other parties, and they suppresses their votes 400%. Uh, and the second, it's an arbitrary barrier. Any party or candidate running presidential in a presidential ballot in more than enough districts to win the electoral college, which is half, has a right to be heard. So we believe that fairness starts at where you have a chance to form a government. And any party that's running in more than half the ridings deserves a fair share. And you're running in 43, I understand, well, as of today. we nominated in 43, but we're the first small party in the province's history to register 124 constituency associations. And we did that in 2015. And when they rigged the Elections Act, They said that no subsidies for parties with constituency associations that weren't registered in 2014, which means if we got 100% of the vote, we wouldn't qualify for any subsidies. So, no, the Green Party has only registered constituency associations in half the ridings. So we'll have candidates on every ballot, and we got three months to get there. Okay. Again, all we've said is... You can't be half pregnant. You can't have a horse race where the wind plays and show horses or drinking champagne in the winter circle before you even open the gates for the smaller parties. All right, so here's the last thing, and I got one minute left. Uh, and this is, you're taking this seriously. Linda's taking this seriously. I know you're not doing this as a lark, as a joke, nothing like that at all. Right. However, when we open the door to all the parties, let's say somebody decides that they're going to do the rhinoceros party thing or they're going to create the flying wombat party that allows for mandated nudism and Flintstones vitamins for everyone. I don't know. How do we then, if you've got 30 or 40 parties, how do you possibly have a candidates debate or have a, have a, an all candidates meeting when everybody gets to jump on the floor together? It sounds very cumbersome. Is, again, 
First, it's not what I've said. Second, it's not what happens in the world. The average in all countries is eight political parties, period. And the fact of the matter is we have twice as many as most other countries, and most people, 99% of people, don't even know there's more than three parties. No, and Linda just told us that I think she said there were 23 that are registered in Ontario. There's 21 registered, 21. two new ones going to be on the ballot. But anyway, here, let me answer the question. So the... You don't have to have a debate with all the parties on it. You can have a major or first debate with the parties that are running in 50% of the ridings or more and have a second debate with the other parties, like the Republican parties did in the presidential debates because they had 19 candidates. The other thing you can do is it is, is wrong to say that Canada will have extreme parties. Canada is one of the few countries in the world that has only had one extreme party in its history, and that was the rhinoceros. Britain has had the raving lunatic party, and other countries that have, have had totally ridiculous parties that run candidates. They get their occasional media coverage, but they never run in half the ballots. So, again, you know, let's be fair here. Yes, there may be an occasional time when you have a candidate that you don't want to hear from or is espousing some policies you don't like. Like, for example, when John Trammell was on the debate in Oshawa with Cynthia Mulligan. And when he went off the deep end, she said, either shut up or we're throwing you off the program. So the journalists and the moderators can handle the debates, but every registered party that's running candidates has at least the right under the Broadcast Act and under the Elections Act to have their major parties' policies known by voters. Greg, i got to jump in. I'd love to have you back again sometime, Thank but we you. are flush out of time. Thanks Thank for you. doing this, Greg. Appreciate it. Thank you. Greg Vezina, the leader of the None of the Above Party. It's an interesting discussion. What attention should be given to the other parties? You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. It sounds like a bit of a broken record, but uh, shockingly... To the surprise of no one, shockingly, my tongue is planted firmly in my cheek when I say that. Shockingly, there was another shooting at a high school today down in the States in the Baltimore area in Maryland. There was a shooting and a armed teenager came in and uh, shot, 17-year-old, shot two other students. Didn't kill them, thankfully, at least as of last report. As I understand it, they are going to be okay, it looks like. But they were, here's where things get interesting and here's where, here is where, boy, the, um, if you like Donald Trump, you're going to say he was right. If you don't like Donald Trump, you're going to say this was just a fluke situation. But boy, the discussion that is going to follow this shooting and Donald Trump's suggestion after the last one, the one down in Parkland, Florida, because you will recall that after the last shooting, that one, that horrible one, they're all horrible, um, I guess they're horrible on relative scales of horribleness. But after the one in Florida, Donald Trump suggested that teachers and staff at schools should be able to have, should be armed so they could stop a shooter who came into a school. Well, interestingly, this one, a school resource officer who happened to be armed, within a minute was able to stop this shooter in under a minute and was able to kill the shooter. And according to everybody down there from the sheriff to the school board, everyone else, it almost certainly saved lives, almost certainly saved lives. That's what they're saying. I'm, this is not an editorial opinion. This is the folks down there saying this person with this gun in this school, this resource officer who had this gun saved lives by shooting the shooter and stopping what was going on. So does this support Donald Trump's position that having teachers, having staff, having other people in the schools with a gun would be the answer? Or is this a one-off where you say, well, you know, the resource officer happened to be in the right place at the right time and he had good aim and on and on and on. What do you think? We've got a few minutes. I'd love to hear from you on this one. Was Donald Trump, no one around here wants to ever acknowledge that Donald Trump could be right on anything. It's an unpopular thing even to say that Donald Trump may have been right, may have been right, but was he? When you see this, do you say, yeah, you know what? We can't turn schools into fortresses. We can't make them cinder block prisons where you have to come through nine levels of security. It's a school. And as long as people are going to have guns, there could be school shootings. So the response to this, the way to deal with this is to have people in the schools who will have a gun, 
who could stop something like this. And today that seems to have happened. Does that make Donald Trump correct? That's what I want to know from you. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. You can also send me a note at radley at 900chml.com. Do you see this story? And if you were vigorously opposed, if you thought that the president's suggestion several weeks, several a month ago, I guess, when you heard his suggestion a month ago, and you may have been one of those people who said, you are nuts. You're out of your mind. We don't want to be arming people in schools. Does this change your opinion at all? Or do you look at this and simply say, no, you know what? This was a terrible situation again, but the circumstances that led to the shooter being taken down were kind of perfect and it was a perfect storm and many things could have gone wrong. So no, I don't change my viewpoint at all. What is your thought on this one? Has this changed your view, bolstered your view, enhanced your view? Don joins me. Don, how are you tonight? Yeah, not too bad. How are you, Scott? I'm good, thanks. What do you think about this? Uh, yeah, I was just on my way uh, to drop my son off, actually, at Catechism, and I asked him what he thought about that, and he said maybe tranquilizer darts. Interesting. I, you know, no one's ever said, well, I haven't heard anyone suggest that. It's an interesting idea. I don't know what the mechanism is, you know, how accurate those things are to shoot them or whatever, but yeah, that's a really interesting idea. Better than killing someone, for sure. That's correct. That's correct. Listen, Don, I really appreciate the call. So tell your son he's got a good idea, good good move. Thank you. Uh, let me go to uh, let me go to Ed here. Ed, how are you? Not too bad, Scott. How are you doing? I'm good. What do you think about this? Did this uh, enhance your view on something? Change it, or is it exactly the same as it was before? I'm not in favor of arming uh, school teachers to protect our children in schools. They're there. They're there to teach, and I think that that's a burden enough as it is. What I would like to suggest that in the states, especially with all the the veterans coming back from the wars. Men who know how to handle a gun are not afraid to shoot. And a lot of them are injured or maimed, but they're, they can do light duties, and so, like, for example, school, school custodians. Now, if anybody should come into a school and they're armed, they have, like, they're going to meet some re- real resistance. And it takes the burden away from the teachers. Interesting. Another good idea. Another interesting. Now, some people would say, honestly, Ed, some people will say, listen, that you're still giving guns, you're still allowing guns in the schools. I, I, I don't know whether today changes my opinion or not, but today at least gives me pause to say, I don't know how many people would have died today if someone hadn't been there. We will never know that. But it certainly at least suggests maybe there's something to it. I don't know. Like putting the guns in the hands of teachers, I, I think it's just ludicrous. But people who have been in, in armed conflict... Who know what they're doing. You're right. They know what they're doing. And they wouldn't have any fear of, uh, you know, of presenting themselves to anybody who would intrude themselves in that situation. Ed, it's a really interesting idea. I appreciate the call. I appreciate the thought. Thank you very much. Uh, Radley at 900chml.com, if you have an idea on this. Did this change your mind, or did this not change your mind, either because you were in favor or opposed to it? I'd love to hear from you on this one, because I think this is a fascinating case study that you will hear those who are in favor of guns in the schools point to this one as the reason why. Did it affect you? Radley at 900chml.com. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900chml. Forbes came out today with its ranking of major league ballparks. Roger Center in Toronto, Blue Jays home, came in at number 22 which is probably where I kind of thought it would be. What was shocking to me, what was surprising, was that it was one spot behind Minute Maid Park in Houston and one spot ahead of the Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati. And the reason that surprises me is both those ballparks, I've been to both of them, and they are I thought they'd be higher. They're both cool parks. But is that where Rogers Center should be? Well, we'll get to that in just a second. But if you really want to know about all these places, you got to talk to people who have been to all these places. And I happen to have two of them that I'm waiting to bring on here. Uh, Because not only have they been to them all, not only have they been to all 30 major league ballparks, they've done all 30 major league ballparks in 30 days. If that sounds a little bit insane, I would argue it probably was a little bit insane. They then backed this up and it told the whole story in what I would argue is just one of the books you should get this summer and read because it is a terrific read. It's a lot of fun. It's called If I I Don't Care If We Ever Get Back. And it's the story of their attempt. I won't tell you whether or not they succeeded, although I kind of gave the ending away. But whether they were able to do 30 ballparks in 30 days, 
Ben Blatt and Eric Brewster join me now. How are you guys? Doing great. Great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. First of all, before we get going, do you guys agree with the placement for Roger Center? Are you guys a fan of Roger Center, or is it near the bottom of your guys' list as well? Uh, You know, it's hard to rank, especially kind of when you get to the middle. But I think 22, we didn't do a full listing, but... uh, I certainly wouldn't put it near the top, so I guess uh, anything out of the top five. Not to throw too much shade, uh, <laughs> but uh, that sounds a bit right. But uh, I will say, you know, we kind of dragged our way through a lot of the ballparks, and some uh, some were kind of miserable, and some were just okay, and uh, Rogers Center was far from miserable. I, I will say, though, we wound up at Rogers Center on Canada Day, and the uh, team spirit's got to count for something there. So that... uh Bumped it up a couple spots for me in the rankings. All right, fan base. that's good. It. Now, who was that? Who was that? Who was just talking at the end there? That's Eric. That's Eric. Okay, so let's go to Ben first. Then Ben, what, what was yours before we get to your story? Because I want to tell this story of what you guys did. Because as I say, it's a great book. I read it last summer and I completely loved it. And I've wanted to have you guys on. Ben, what was your? Give me your top three. If you were to go back to three parks, if you ever want to go to a major league park ever again after this experience, what would be the three you would want to go back to? I think the if is the uh, operative word there. But, yeah, I think the uh, top of the Forbes ranking I actually 100% agree with, which is uh, San Francisco AT&T Park uh, overlooking the bay uh, with the fans there. That's just a great park. Um, I always really like Pittsburgh. Uh, again, kind of over a river. Uh, it kind of snuck up on me, but I think that's just a beautiful ballpark. Uh, and if I guess I for number three, uh, growing up in Boston, Fenway, you know, is kind of small and crowded and, you know, that's, gets disguised as charming, but I think uh, in the case of Fenway, it actually is kind of a unique experience and uh, should be on any baseball fan's bucket list for sure. I believe, Ben, if you grew up in Boston and you don't say Fenway, they actually have teams that hunt you down and kill you. I think that's sort of mandated by law that you must say that, isn't it? I I, I, I can't argue with that. It's going to be as impartial as possible, but at the same time, rank Fenway as highly as possible. Eric, what about you? What would your three be for people who want to go see the three, in your mind, the three best parks? Where should they go? Absolutely. Well, uh, I'll uh, get the uh, murder squad out of the way and say Dodger Stadium, (laughs) because I am an L.A. kid at heart. Uh, That aside, I uh, do agree with Ben about uh, PNC Park in Pittsburgh. The uh, river view is incredible. And then... uh, Baltimore Orioles, you got to love the old brick walls, the history, uh, Camden. So that's got to count for something. Okay, so you guys, uh, you guys saw all these because you came up with this plan. You came. Now, how did you come up with this idea that you were going to do thirty parks in thirty days? Who came up with this originally? Uh, so this is Ben. This it was kind of by accident, kind of by plan. I was in a club in college that did kind of very nerdy sports things, just looking at how much a player is worth, projecting the future stuff. And I did a very theoretical exercise of what would happen if you wanted to go to all 30 in 30 days as fast as possible. Uh, is that even doable? And how would you do it if you could? So I published a paper uh, with an algorithm, how to do this theoretically. Uh, and I was getting a lot of emails and phone calls from CNN and such asking me when I was doing the trip. And I was just like, no, I wish I was doing this trip, but I'm just kind of in my basement right now. Uh, So that was one summer. And then the next summer, uh, you know, I'm in college and uh, Eric's my best friend and he does not really, not the biggest baseball fan, but I was like, I got to do this trip while I have the chance. And at least some people are interested in it. So we kind of uh, decided to actually put this theoretical road trip into practice and actually try to do this kind of 30 day, either dream or nightmare trip. So, Eric, when he comes to you then with this concept, and he just said, and I've read this, you were not the world's biggest baseball fan. How in the world did you even agree to do this? Because this, if you're not a huge baseball fan, this would seem to be a really bad idea to launch into right off the bat. Oh, yeah. And the short answer is I got completely duped. He tricked me. Uh, Absolute bait. He needed another driver. So next thing I know, I'm thinking, oh, it'll be a great chance to see America. You know, we hit, I think, like 37 states. (laughs) <laughs> see the country, experience it through the pastime, and then sure enough, you know, you just get into these absurd situations where we're in such a rush to get to the game. I've never been to the Grand Canyon. We drove by the Grand Canyon. We didn't go to the Grand Canyon. Uh, and we did that with about like 15 different national monuments, and it was just the worst way to see America. So there's an endorsement. Yeah, it, it sounds a little bit like a f- high-speed Chevy Chase National Lampoon vacation experience. Just, just, you know, okay, there it was. There we go. This, though, Ben, when you do this algorithm, algorithms are always wonderful things or computer programs or, or concepts, but they don't always factor in real life. And 
this was going to be a real life thing. So even after you set out and you said, okay, we're actually going to do this, when you start figuring in that there could be traffic, there could be storms, there could be this, there could be that, one of us could get sick, did you actually think it was going to be doable? Uh, so, yeah, and we put in a few things kind of built in, uh, which slowed down kind of the total trip time a bit, but, you know, tried to give us some leeway for sleep and such. Uh, we calculated beforehand that just uh, there was about a one-third chance that a game would be delayed, and that obviously would be completely out of our control. And uh, I won't give away anything that happens too far into the book, but I think this happens within the first third, uh, you know, as kind of perfect or as mathematical as this algorithm is, uh, we actually drove 15 hours from Milwaukee to Denver and then napped through the beginning of the game, which means we had to kind of throw, throw out uh, the existing itinerary and calculate a new one and shift a lot of things around. And it went from uh, pretty good, but, you know, pretty close to optimal to just kind of a total rat, uh, rat race around America. Uh, so, you know, as much as we kind of knew that it could be an issue, we kind of uh, rolled the dice. And uh, a lot of times it came up our way, but sometimes uh, to our own fault it did not. Eric, there were rules. I mean, obviously these are not hard and fast laws, but there were rules that you guys had put in place to make this thing official. What were the rules? So it was as simple as 30 games, 30 days. You have to see the entirety of every game at every stadium. So that means be there for first pitch, stay there till the last. So that would inevitably lead to problems with, you know, we had a game or two go into extra innings, some as far as like 13, 14 innings. So when you have like a 14-hour drive coming up right after a game ends, you start to look at your watch and be like, okay, we got to be in Tampa by tomorrow, and we're in Cincinnati right now. Uh, and, and, yeah, so that was a little bit stressful because uh, half the time the only chance to really sleep would be while you were at the actual games when you had a whole night's drive ahead of you. So uh, not like the purest way to enjoy the sport of baseball, but objectively a way to witness baseball. And you must have been just dousing yourself in hot dogs and other ballpark food because you wouldn't have time always to do all kinds of stuff. You eat while you're there. You must have just been loaded with crap, quite frankly, with the food that you were going to yeah. be eating at these places. I, uh, I had imposed this event and imposed a special rule just because I had always grown up getting a hot dog at every game and, you know, I guess, you know, fresh out of college, also wanted a beer. So I got a beer and a hot dog at every game. Uh, and besides that, you know, it was a lot of roadside rest area food. So definitely not the healthiest 30 days uh, that we've ever endured. But uh, somehow, we, somehow we got through it and have recovered since. What does something like this cost? Because I mean, now you guys did it with driving, right? So you weren't taking flights and you weren't adding air, airfare and everything else. But even to drive with gas, with food, with tickets, with everything else, what does a trip like this cost? So this was, you know, we did it about, uh, we had a little bit of money I had saved up for it, but, you know, it was two people kind of right out of college and we were not uh, not above sharing whatever the cheapest motel is we could find. Uh, so it cost about $6,500 and that's kind of the absolute bare minimum considering, you know, we were buying $3 tickets on StubHub and uh, definitely not uh, wasting any money where we couldn't afford to. That's 6500 each or 6500 total? Combined. So wow. A lot of that, mo most of the uh, the tickets themselves were not too bad, and even parking at the games is not terrible, but uh, the gas in the hotel probably ate up about two-thirds of that 6500 At any point along the way, do people start to, did anyone know what you guys were doing? Like, were you two the only ones who knew this, or did other people start to catch on at different stadiums? Uh, you know, we sometimes would chat at people near us, kind of the usual responses, you know, maybe it's an older gentleman or something. And we kind of tell them, you know, we're 21 games in the 30 and they say, well, that's my dream, but to do it over the course of 35 years, uh, and then kind of look at us like we're crazy. Um, so I think a lot of people probably saw two very tired men walking <laughs> through ballparks, but, uh, we weren't, we weren't, uh, going around, uh, with, uh, t-shirts on advertising and necessarily either. You spent an awful lot of time together, though, because some of those... What was the longest drive you had to do between games? Uh, the longest one, which uh, in terms of actual hours, was Dallas to Los Angeles, um, which luckily was the kind of a day game, night game, and we had the time change with us. But yeah, that was about uh, over 20 hours uh, 
kind of to go wow. from a day game in Dallas to a night game in uh, L.A. the next day. How did you not kill each other? Honestly, I mean, you're best friends, I know, but still, how do you not kill each other when you're doing this much, there's this much stress? Because some of these, again, not giving away too much of the book, but and you just touched on it, there's games that go late, you got to take off, you're, you're under the gun. How do you end up not wanting to never talk to each other again? Oh, uh, no, you absolutely do end up wanting to never talk to each other again. Uh, that's without question. We tried murder, but we were both incompetent and inept. Uh, so here we are. Uh, yeah, no, it, it isn't easy. Uh, I don't think I'd ever spent, I mean, I absolutely, obviously have not spent that much time with anyone in that sort of contained scenario in my life. And, uh, yeah, there's only so much to say on day 27 with your third consecutive day of 17 hours in a car with someone. Uh, it wears on you and it's a challenge and you kind of go through stretches of like, it's a love-hate relationship inevitably, but you know, it helps you have a goal in mind and we both understood what we were trying to do, even if we disagreed on uh, some of the tactics and uh, the spirit of the game. But, but does uh, it, yeah, you know. Does it get, because when I asked you off the top and part of the reason, this was a perfect reason to have you on because of this Forbes list today, but they came out with this list and you have your favorites, but as this, as this was going on, as you're getting into day 25, 26, 27, can you actually enjoy any of the parks, any of the games, any of the baseball experience, or are you just saying, just please just get me to the end. And now you look back, you go, I probably hated that park because I was just so tired and so fed up with this thing. Yeah, there was definitely, I think you kind of nailed it by like that 20 to 25 game stretch. Uh, a lot of things were starting to blur in. We still will like strike up a conversation about a park and then realize we were talking about a completely different city. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, and you know, half the time we're stressed about, oh, getting to the next place that's 2,000 miles away 15 hours from now. So it, uh, we definitely got a good experience at every park and that we went out of our way to enjoy every little niche and, and quirk about every stadium. But uh, there's definitely, you know, a dozen or so that are kind of comically standardized and look like a computer-generated model of what a baseball park is supposed to be. And those are the ones that kind of fade away as time goes by. Well, and you just touched on it, though. I was going to ask you, do you, when you went to these parks, did you actually check them out or did you just go to your seat and just collapse into your seat? Like, was part of the effort made to make sure that you experience these places? Uh, I would say, you know, we we made as much effort as we could to experience them. And, you know, it's fun, you know, you know, you go to, uh, you know, Washington, D.C., and there's, uh, you know, monuments to the presidents or whatnot. But that, you know, pretty much in any park, even if they have a little, you know, team history or team hall of fame, that probably at best eats up a half hour. Uh, and then you have a two and a half hours more of baseball. Uh, and if you've seen everything and, you know, even if we're moving up the seats to get as close as possible, uh, there's almost so much only so much you can do at a ballpark so uh you know we definitely tried to kind of uh soak it all in but for a lot of these parks uh you I, it would be unlikely if i ended up uh willingly going back to a game there <laughs> any of the pl- any players ever find out about this did you ever talk to any players along the way uh we had an incident when we were in Tampa Bay trying to do laundry where we ran into the father of Eric Hosmer who wound up going on to win a World Series a year or two ago. Um, and so we got to chatting with him, and we hung out with him at the game uh, afterwards. And, and that was a very uh, funny – where he was, you know, like the only people who see as many games as we do are the players themselves. <laughs> That's true. Uh, you know, from that month alone. So, uh, But that was an interesting experience to get the other side of the story. We also had one game where we uh, wound up sitting next to the wife of one of the umpires who was calling the game. And that was like another uh, warped look into, you know, the way that baseball just kind of invades every day of your life. No uh, kidding. No kidding. So would you, I mean, you've done this and again, I, I want to repeat and I'm going to repeat it again after this. The book is, I don't care if we never get back, uh, go out and get it. It's on Amazon. It's on Kobo. Uh, it's well worth a read. It's a lot of fun. I don't imagine you're probably planning on doing this particular thing again. But would you do something like this? Would you ever do it with a different sport and say, hey, let's see if we can do the NBA or NHL or something like that? Would, would, would that intrigue you at all? Or you've done this once, and that's more than sufficient for us for the rest of our life? Uh, I think in the near term, it's more, more than uh, sufficient enough. It's been five years, so you know, maybe, maybe 10 years uh, from the original trip where we consider it. Baseball is, you know, as much as uh, we're talking about how it was at a time, it's nearest, it's still kind of the perfect sport for this trip just because it's during the summer it's uh kind of relaxed the the games are outside uh so it's enjoyable in that sense 
Um, and, you know, if we were to do it again, you know, maybe, maybe go to all 30 NBA games over the course of uh, two years. It might be a bit more enjoyable and doable. Or maybe try and do, you know, like 150 minor league parks in 150 days. That's uh, what we call the next circle of hell, I think, yes. <laughs> I think you're probably right. Uh, listen, it is, uh, again, it is a terrific book. If anyone likes baseball, if anyone likes a good travel story, if anyone just likes to read about two good friends who came very, very close to homicide uh, at certain moments in a fun way, uh, Ben Blatt and Eric Brewster, authors of I Don't Care If We Ever Get Back, go get the book. Uh, guys, listen, I loved the book. I've wanted to have you on since I read it last summer. This was the perfect opportunity. Thanks for taking the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. That is, uh, I don't know, Ben, would you ever do something like that? This is the other Ben. This is my Ben who now, not Ben Blatt, the author. This is Ben. Would you ever do something like that? Would you, Whether it's baseball or if you found something else that you loved, would you ever try something like that? Absolutely, without a doubt. And what would that be? Actually, funny enough, there's a few of them. One of them is my friend Kyle and I, we are really good friends and really big fans of paintball. And so every every year there's a season where you go from Las Vegas to New York to Chicago, and there's a bunch of different venues that have big events. They're like weekend-long events. Wow. So our plan is to go to do that to someday? see them and maybe play in them. Uh, this book, um, I, I laughed. I mean, it was, it's, a really, it's a really funny book. And considering it's by two young guys that I don't know, I don't think they had ever been writers before. It was very well done. Um, yeah, go read it. But, uh, now, meanwhile, back to the Forbes list for a second, which is what started this whole thing. The Forbes list came out this week of the top major league ballparks. Now, I am an aficionado of the major league baseball park. I love going to a major league baseball diamond, not, not, and not just major leagues, although they are beautiful. They're temples because they're just perfect. You can smell the grass. Most of them or you smell the plastic in Roger center, but you can smell the grass and it's just, to me, they're the, the perfect place on earth is Friday afternoon in the bleachers at Wrigley field on a sunny day. There is no place on earth better than that. What Forbes said, though, here is Forbes' list of their top 10. I'll read you the top 10. Well, I'll give you the whole list. I'll do it really fast. AT&T Park in San Francisco, which both of them chose as the best place. Oriole Park at Camden Yards, number two. Bush Stadium in St. Louis, number three. Dodger Stadium, PNC Park. PNC Park in Pittsburgh. I agree with them as well. Beautiful park. You wouldn't necessarily think of Pittsburgh as the place that would have a park this gorgeous, unbelievably great. Not far to get to. You can drive there in five hours or five and a half hours. Coors Field, Fenway Park, Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City, Petco Park in San Diego, Wrigley Field, number 10, Safeco Field in Seattle, New New Yankee Stadium, City Field in Queens, New York for the Mets, uh, the Rangers Park, Globe Life Park in Arlington, Comerica Park in Detroit, Target Field in Minneapolis is number 16, 17 is Miller Park in Milwaukee, Atlanta's new place, SunTrust Park in Atlanta, uh, the Braves, Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia, Progressive Field in in Cleveland is number 20. That's another great one. It's not far to get to from here. Minute Maid Park in Houston for the Astros. That's right ahead of number 22, Rogers Center for the Blue Jays. 23, Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati. I don't know how it's that low. Nationals Park, number 24 in Washington. Angel Stadium is number 25. 26 is Marlins Park, which I don't know how it got that high because it's an eyesore. Chase Field for Arizona, for the Diamondbacks is 27. Guaranteed Rate Field, which is a stupid name for anything, for the White Sox in Chicago. Oakland Alameda County Coliseum is number 29. And last on the list to the surprise of absolutely nobody is Tropicana Field in Tampa Bay. There you go. I don't care if we never get back is the name of the book. Go get it. I'm, not, I'm telling you, you will enjoy that book. It is well worth your time. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.